0: Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, Compass Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you have a Bible, this morning we're going to be in the book of Philemon. Philemon. Paul's letter to Philemon. I'm going to read that and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to continue talking about the gospel and its impact on community. Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and co-worker, to Ophia our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house, grace to you, And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and faith toward the Lord Jesus and for all his saints. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through learning of every good thing that is happening among us into Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. I became as a father to him while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you as part of myself. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your goodwill might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother." He is especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, accept him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way and owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hands. I will repay it. Uh, Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self. Yes, brother, may I have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I'm confident of your obedience, I'm writing to you, knowing that you're going to do even more than what I say. But meanwhile, prepare a guest room for me, for I hope that through your prayers I'll be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do uh, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your mercy this morning. No one needs to hear from me, so I pray that you'd help me get out of the way. I pray that your word would be clear and then that we would see what it means to not just know about the ministry of reconciliation, not just talk about it but to actually embody the ministry of reconciliation together I pray that your spirit would work that we would see the beauty of Jesus's victory and how it works itself out in the letter of Philemon and then I pray that as a community through the power of your spirit we would Put this into practice, that we would own our identity in Christ, that we are new creation, and that as a new creation community, we would love one another and practice this ministry that's called reconciliation. ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was William Shakespeare who once said, "'Jesters do oft prove to be prophets.'" "'Jesters do oft prove to be prophets.'" It was the summer of 1982. America was just uh, getting out of a recession. It was during the height of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Uh, the St. Louis Cardinals were about to go into a Game 7 victory against the Milwaukee Brewers in the World Series. And the comedian Andy Kaufman was transforming the world of professional wrestling. Andy Kaufman was transforming the world of professional wrestling. You see, we take for granted, this was 1982. We're used to living in a world where celebrities are playing pranks on us, where they're using public perception to manipulate things, but that was not the case in 1982. In 1982, comedians told jokes, but Kaufman was a comedian who was unlike any of his peers. He didn't just tell jokes. Kaufman would embody jokes, Kaufman understood that a joke was way more powerful when you lived it out rather than when you just had a well-placed punchline. Uh, So Kaufman spent his career with these elaborate pranks. He was actually so good at these pranks uh, that his manager and his best friend, his best friend thought... That when he died two years later in 1984, it was just another prank. That he wasn't really dead. And so he sent out a letter saying, Andy, if you come out of hiding, I'll give you the rest of your money. Because I have it in your estate. He, was, he, he had just made this reputation of not telling jokes, but living them out. And nobody was in on the punchline. His audience had no idea. And so in the summer of 1982, he took his joke telling to a whole new level. It was on David Letterman's show... That he and the wrestler, Jerry the King Lawler, started slapping each other, dumping Letterman's coffee on each other, and the the American public had no idea what was happening. Even David Letterman himself said he had no clue what was going on. He said it was the first time he had ever lost control of his show. Well, what was happening? What was happening was that Andy Kaufman had told someone a joke and it didn't work out, so he decided to live that joke out. Kaufman had approached the head of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, Vince McMahon Sr. And he said, hey, I have an idea, something funny that is going to really help wrestling take it to the next level. See, wrestling, professional wrestling, everybody knows it's fake. It was way different back then. And you see, uh, what if you took the characters outside the rink? What if these spats that wrestlers were having uh, went into the public persona and people didn't know what was really happening? And McMahon said, that's never going to work. That's really stupid. And so Kaufman did it without anybody's permission. Uh, nobody knew what he was doing except for Kaufman and Jerry the King Lawler and a few of his friends. And so they would have very public spats. And Andy Kaufman played the victim. And he played the victim beautifully beautifully. Uh, Jerry Lawler was from Memphis, Tennessee, and so Coffin started making fun of Southerners. He came to Memphis to wrestle Lawler, and he would show instructional videos about how to use soap, and like, he'd play them for the audience, and people got so mad at him. Nobody knew that he was playing this character, playing the villain. Um, so basically, it, it, hit, a, it hit, a head, hit a head in that summer on Letterman's show— where Coffin was claiming to sue Lawler because he hurt him in the wrestling rink and he had a neck brace on. So in one of their wrestling matches, uh, Andy Coffin called a real ambulance and got taken to a real hospital. And had a real hospital make a statement that he had broken his neck. He had not. And the American public is like, what is going on? Everything is coming to an end. We're all losing our minds. And so even as Kaufman grabs a, uh, David Letterman's coffee and dumps it on Jerry the King Lawler on national television, to which Lawler slaps Kaufman across the face, no one had any idea it was an elaborate joke. And it was a joke where it, it, it kept going ten years after Kaufman's death. It was in 1992 that Jerry the King Lawler told the public like, yeah, we were friends, and this was a joke we had been working on. But it was so successful. It worked. He told a joke, It flopped. It didn't find an audience. And so he realized a better way to tell that joke was to actually live it out, was to embody it. It would have been more powerful. Jesters do often prove to be prophets. That's what the letter of Philemon is all about. Not wrestling. But the letter of Philemon is all about not just telling people about this ministry of reconciliation, but actually embodying it, living it out, It's no coincidence that last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul actually sets up this ministry of reconciliation. He says this, hey, we live in a broken world, but Jesus rescues people out of that broken world, makes them new creation, gives them this new identity. They're a new community, and then he sends them back into that broken world. And now we're reading this letter about a slave who's run away, and Paul sends him back. And we can read that and be like, Paul, what are you doing? Like, don't do that. Slavery is bad. Even though Roman slavery is way different than Americans, don't you know slavery is wrong? Like, what are you doing sending him back? Like, these people don't recognize him as a human. And and you're saying that he's been given this new identity, as new creation, uh, and so now you're going to send him back into this broken system? What are you doing, Paul? What's happening? And the message of Philemon is this. We're not just going to tell people about the ministry of reconciliation, about how Jesus' victory gives us a new identity and a new task, we're going to live it out. We're going to embody it. And it's going to be more powerful. That's the message of Philemon. Don't just talk about the ministry of reconciliation. Embody it. So Paul gives us three ways. If we're going to actually do this, we need to do three things. And he models those for us as he ministers to both Philemon and Onesimus. And I think the question of slavery is a big one in this book. And I just want to leave that question hanging for just a second. Because Paul, the the scholastic scholar Tom Holland makes this statement about Paul. He says the apostle Paul is a genius where he sets these depth charges and then they go off later. And they start turning society upside down. And what we see through the book of Philemon that we're going to see later is that Paul's actually setting a depth charge that makes slavery impossible. It actually takes all the oxygen out of the room for this system called slavery. But we're going to get there. So leave that question hanging in the air for just a second. In the meantime, what Paul wants to say is this. Paul's saying this. Hey, the ministry of reconciliation is the most important thing about you. Make it your identity. Embody it. How do you do that? First, you need to mimic Jesus' ministry of reconciliation you need to mimic it and that's what paul does in to philemon and onesimus after you've mimicked it you need to embrace your need for others we were never made to live alone you can't live the christian life out alone paul shows how we need other people to move deeper into our understanding of the gospel not just deeper into our understanding but deeper into our experience of the gospel embrace your need for others it's not a sign of weakness And then after we do that, after we're mimicking Jesus's ministry, we're embracing our need for others, we can use this community that's being created out of that as a witness to a broken world. See, Philemon is application of 2 Corinthians. Jesus saves people, makes them new, and sends them back into a broken world for that ministry of reconciliation. Onesimus is saved, he's made new, and he's sent back into a broken world with that ministry of reconciliation. So let's first look at how we're supposed to mimic Jesus' work of reconciliation. We're supposed to mimic Jesus' work of reconciliation. This idea is found in verse—starting in verse 12, really, but it carries into verse 17 and 18. This is what Paul says in verse 12. He says, hey, Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back to you as part of myself. Or as the King James says, I'm sending Onesimus back. He's my very bowels. He was part of Paul's heart. But look at verse uh, 17. This is the main appeal of this letter that he's asking for in verse 17. So, if you consider me a partner, accept him as you would me. And if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now what's going on here? Uh, So that word that Paul uses in verse 12 to say he's sending Onesimus back, that's not the typical word just to return somebody or to send someone back on their way. that's a a legal word. Paul's saying this, I'm sending Onesimus back to you for judgment. It's a word that they would use for, I'm headed into trial. And And what does Paul say? I'm sending Onesimus back to you to be judged, and if he's done anything wrong, charge it to my account. Okay, this is a runaway slave. Of course he's done something wrong. He ran away. Uh, That cost Philemon money. That was costly. In that that culture, in that society, that would have been punishable by death. Uh, Just by way of reminders, we talked about last week, uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, the title of person wasn't something that was given to everyone. Not everyone was a person. Uh, Only if you were a, a, a rich, wealthy landowner, or if you were an heir that would inherit that, or if you were a wealthy woman, would you be given this title of person. And if you never had any opportunity to become a person, you were given names uh, that meant you didn't matter. And one of those such names is Onesimus. It would have been an incredibly common name for a slave to have Onesimus. You're just useful. So here's a guy who runs away from his owner and has no social capital. He has nothing to lay hold of, he's got nothing to offer, and he comes to Paul for help. What do I do? And along the way, he gets saved. And so Paul sends him back, and he says this. Hey, if this guy has wronged you, charge that to my account. Think about what Paul's saying for just a second. If he's wronged you, yeah, he's definitely wronged you. Charge it to me. What's Paul saying? If Onesimus should be crucified, let it happen to me. Here's what Paul's doing. Paul is taking our passage we looked at last week, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, he made him who had never experienced sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God treated Jesus as though he had sinned and treats us as though we had lived righteously. And Paul is taking that upon himself in his ministry toward Onesimus and Philemon. He's embodying this ministry of reconciliation. He's being just like Jesus for someone who is not deserving at all, someone with nothing to offer, is saying this, hey, if you're going to crucify someone, crucify me, not him. That starts to see, the you see the power of this letter. If we just read it quickly, it can sound like Paul's like, hey, just let this guy go, oh, by the way, Philemon, you owe me a lot. Uh, the reason Paul makes that statement is because he's just offered to kill himself for this person, for Onesimus. Why in the world would he do this? Because he's making a statement. He's making a statement about what it means to be this new creation, this new community that God builds us. This new community is built on this amazing equality that in Christ there's no longer slave nor free, that we're all equal. It's an old cliche, but it's unbelievably true that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Here's someone, Onesimus, that his culture said, not a person. And Paul's saying, no, 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 in verse 8 and 9, he's my very heart. He's a part of me. And so if you're going to kill someone, kill me. He's been welcomed into this new community that is built on equality because we're all forgiven by Jesus and that totally starts to turn the social order of things upside down. This would have been completely unheard of in that day. I mean, they, there are so many accounts of slaves running away that either just got killed or were just taken back. But Paul's saying this. Don't just take him back, like he says in verse 17, as a slave. Take him back is something even way beyond a slave. A beloved brother. This is the identity that he actually gives to Philemon. Philemon, in verse 1, he opens up by saying, hey, you're my dearly beloved friend. And then in verse 20, Paul uses this identity about Philemon. Hey, you're my brother. And now he's saying this onesimus is the same as you there's no room for boasting no room for uh like just rubbing things in their face there's a great equality that the gospel brings we are all part of a body and we are all equals in this body and paul is embodying that for the ministry of reconciliation between these two people There's also a weird pun that we need to address, because when you first, if you read this fast, Paul can sound like he's being kind of a jerk, um, but he's actually, he's, he's highlighting this new identity that Onesimus has received. Look at verse 11 again. This is what he says. Once he was useless to you, but now he's useful, both to you and to me. Um, Onisimus, as we already talked about, is a name that means useful. Uh, obviously, you can see why they would name a slave Onisimus. And so now Paul uses this pun that's really awesome in Greek and kind of lame in English. He says, hey, Onisimus, the useful one, was useless because he ran away from you. But now we're returning him to you and he's new creation and he's useful. Well, the words in Greek uh, sound like this. Once he was akreston and now he's eukraston. That sounds like Christ. And this is what Paul is saying. It's a clever pun. He's saying this. Once he was ah, uh, Christon. Once he didn't have Jesus. And now he's you, Christon. Jesus is beautiful to him. He's describing a transformation that's taken place in Onesimus' life. And, and this is what he's saying by saying that to him. Hey, 2 Corinthians 5.16. We don't regard one another according to worldly standards. Yeah, this guy cost you something. He ran away from you. And in this society that we live in, that could that could bring great shame on you, Philemon, based on how you respond to that. But that's not who that's not who Onesimus is. That's not his identity to you. He's a brother because Jesus is beautiful to him. He's been rescued and he's been made new creation. And now he's actually not just a brother; he's a part of you. Paul isn't just talking about reconciliation, and he's not just encouraging reconciliation. He's all in on reconciliation. He's made it a part of who he is. And now, now that now that he's starting to show what reconciliation is like, he can move even deeper in his relationship with Philemon. Once he says this, he says, hey, once you start to see how as new creation, Jesus is continuing the work of reconciliation through us. We pick up that ministry and we continue it in one another. We use our lives to point people to that. And he's saying this, in that process, if you're going to really do that, you need other people for that. He says this. Embrace your need for each other. Like you cannot do this on your own. Oftentimes in the New Testament when Paul writes a letter, uh, he tells us like right up front why he writes it. Sometimes it's super duper clear. Sometimes it's not clear and you have to do a little bit of digging. The letter to Philemon is actually pretty clear. In verse 6, this is why Paul tells us he's writing this letter. He says this. "Um, In order that so that's, or why is he writing this? In order that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is happening among us for Christ. Let's unpack that statement for a little bit. Here's what he's saying when he's, when he's talking about, he's writing so that your partnership might be energized, that you might learn about what's happening among us, and then for, or literally into Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the partnership that we experience with other believers uh, the word is partnership sometimes. It's translated uh, fellowship. John uses the same word to say we know that we have fellowship with God because we have fellowship with one another and I'm writing that your fellowship might be full. He says that in 1 John. This is the same word. Uh, this idea of he's writing so that he's going to fill out. He's going to energize. He, that, Paul, uh, that Philemon's fellowship or unity might become effective. Might be given life. Might be life-giving and energetic. Why? So that he can move into Christ. This this fellowship, this unity that we experience as this new creation body together moves us into a deeper experience, a deeper love, a deeper knowledge of Jesus. You need that fellowship to move deeper into your understanding of Jesus and his victory. He's won for you. Needing others is not a sign of weakness. It's actually wired into our DNA as a church. He says that, he says, you don't, you, I'm sending Onesimus back to you and you actually need him. If you don't understand his brokenness and now how you receive, once you, once you understand his brokenness and receive him back as an equal, you understand the gospel in a deeper and richer way. Relationships are not just some add-on to the Christian faith. They are the ministry of reconciliation that once we were alienated, now we're brought together. And we're not just brought back together on the fringes. We're brought back together. That moves you deeper into your understanding of the gospel. Paul would go so far as to say in verse 6 that hey, this is going to give life and make it effective. The opposite of that is saying this. You're going to be ineffective if you don't have relationships. We need relationships to work. This this unity, uh, in English, the, the word unity kind of, it sounds not exactly what Paul is trying to describe here. Uh, you can have unity with someone and not really be, have your life tied together with them. That's why community is a much better word. Hey, we're united on something and we're not just like strangers in the night. We're tying our lives together. And Paul says that idea of community is what you need to understand Jesus's work of salvation in your own life. Onesimus uh, was on the fringes of society, and now because he's new creation, he's welcomed back as an equal with someone who is very important. When Philemon, who was powerful, who had money, uh, is welcoming and worshiping with his slave, that is something completely unusual. That would have cost him something. He would have had firsthand knowledge and experience of the gospel, of like, wow, my love for Onesimus cost me something. How much more do you think Jesus' love for me must have cost? He actually was really powerful. My, my power is kind of a facade. It's fading. It's not, it's not here forever. But he was really powerful, and he really gave something up. Wow. I'm starting to understand this work of reconciliation in the gospel. And he needed other people for it. And this can't be forced. Paul makes that statement uh, starting in verse 9. He says this. He says to Philemon... Um, I'm appealing to you on the basis of love to receive Onesimus back. See, community, this love can't be forced. L- love, what's happening, what's being described is that, that one another that's fruit of the gospel. Uh, a pastor hero of mine, someone once asked him, how are you going to build a church? How, how are you going to take a church and just make it uber successful, have lots of people come here? And he said, I, I, I don't know how to do that. I'm actually not in the business of doing that. here's what I believe. If you preach the gospel, people will understand the gospel. They'll understand they're really sinful, but yet really loved. And when people understand that, the fruit of that is love. They're going to turn and love one another. And that's a love that people all want to experience, and it's going to attract people to it. See, if Paul were to say, if Paul were to write back and just say, hey, uh, slavery's wrong. Uh, Take this guy back. He would have done something way less powerful than what he was trying to do. All he would have done is was establish like, oh yeah, these Christians, it's this new religious group. They're kind of weird and they believe slavery is wrong. And that's all we know about them. But instead what he's done is he's saying, no, slavery is completely impossible in this, in this worldview. Why? Because they, they think they're all equals. They, 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 they don't recognize this social hierarchy that we have. They, they think they're all people. They're all made in the image of God. They actually, that rich people have something to learn from poor people. This was something that had never happened Ever in the history of the Roman Empire. Uh, The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, if Philemon, if Philemon were the only document that we had from early Christianity, we would know that something very different was happening. Something different from the way that the rest of the world has behaved. this is what Paul's saying. Hey, this ministry of reconciliation, nobody's doing this. Nobody's loving like this because you can't love like this. God had to make you new to do this. And so when you actually do this, when you experience community, when you start loving one another, that starts to act as a witness to the world. That's what Paul moves into next. He says, use your community as a witness to the broken world. Use your community as witness to a broken world. The, um, uh, the American theologian Oz Guinness uh, makes this statement. He says, "For too much Christian, far too much Christian evangelism and apologetics is based on the assumption That everyone is open, interested, and needy. When most people, most of the time, are quite simply not. We live in a society where this ministry of reconciliation is more important than ever. Christianity is more and more being pushed to the fringes. We're weirdos. People accuse us of bigotry. Uh, And when we start to say to them, no, 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 here's our message. This is what we're really about. Look how awesome we are. It falls on deaf ears. You know, what, you know what can really surprise our culture, though? Is when we're a group of people made up of, a, of people who have nothing in common, who shouldn't love each other, who should actually hate one another, and they love one another. Not just love one another, but they've tied their lives together. That rich CEO, um, she's crying with that poor homeless man. They have fellowship. They have this partnership. The, that you can see the most important thing about these people is not their status in the world, it's not their, uh, their identity as winners in our culture, but it's the fact that they are new creation community. There's something unlike anything that's ever happened. And when we are this new creation community in a broken world, we stick out like sore thumbs. Um, you see, like I mentioned earlier, uh, there were other slaves that had been returned uh, to their masters. Um, so, roughly 70 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, there was a guy named Pliny the Younger, and he was a, a Roman senator. He was incredibly powerful, uh, and someone who was another socialite, uh, but not as powerful, wrote him a letter about his slave running away. And so, we actually have Pliny's letter. And some of the highlights of Pliny's letter are things like this. He says, he writes to this social inferior who's gotten himself a little bit of trouble. He says, hey, I'm writing, you told me that you had a freedman of yours uh, who ran away. Well, he's now come to see me. He actually threw himself at my feet, clung to me as though I were you. He wept a lot. Uh, he was really sorry. It was kind of pathetic. And so he says this, he says this to his friend. He says, hey, take him back. Take him back just because I told you so. Uh, you know, here's why you should take him back. Because you're a powerful person, and it's not going to look good for you if you're lording this over him. People might actually like you more if you can show a little bit of forgiveness. If you can show, hey, I'm a generous person. I forgive slaves. I had no reason to do that. Look how kind and great I am. And so the letter actually looks a lot like the letter of Philemon with a completely different outcome. What's happening here? Well, you see, Pliny the Younger actually just reinforces that social structure. That social structure where the powerful are powerful, uh, and we just lord it over people. But what Paul does is he takes Onesimus, this new creation, and he sends him back into that broken structure, and he flips it upside down. Paul created a system uh, where slavery was completely impossible. It's totally impossible for you to have a slave of somebody who is your equal, Someone that is made in the image of God just like you, but not only that, but is remade into the image of Christ. And you experience that same salvation, and you have a partnership, and you're wired together. You need each other to understand Jesus. And it would be completely impossible for then for you to say to that person that you need and is helping you follow Jesus, hey, I have an idea. How about you work for me for free? I'm gonna treat you like you're not a human, and I'm gonna actually whip you when you, dis, you, know, when you do things I don't like. No, it's ridiculous. See, this new creation community, we take for granted just the impact that it's had on the planet we live in. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm super glad you're here. Welcome. You keep us honest. Thank you for being here. Um, But if you believe in human rights, why? You have no basis to believe in human rights. You're just nice. And that's wonderful. Human rights are great. But this actually gives you a basis. We're people made in the image of God. And when people are receive Christ, repent of their sins, and trust in him, that image of God is not only restored, it's brought back to what it used to be. And because of that, we treat everyone as equals. That gives you a basis for something that you love and affirm, human rights. Christianity, Christianity laid a foundation, and we just take that for granted. We live in a world uh, where, thankfully, slavery isn't, isn't legal anymore, and the seeds of that were planted in the book of Philemon. This new creation community set a witness for the world. Something new was happening that had never been done before. Not just someone going around saying, tsk, tisk," But someone, uh, a savior, taking broken people, making them new, and sending them back into the world for the ministry of reconciliation. So where does that leave us as a community? How are we supposed to live out this ministry of reconciliation? Well, we were just talking about it in a staff meeting, uh, and I think it's next year, Compass Church turns 50 years old. Which is awesome. God's been faithful for 50 years. Lots of amazing things have happened here. But just think about it from another angle for a second. 50 years is a lot of conflict. There's 50 years of broken relationships, 50 years of hurt feelings. That's messy. This ministry of reconciliation, let's not sugarcoat it. It's hard. It's, it's not easy. It's difficult. It's difficult but we think it's a mess worth making. Uh, the author Ken Sandy makes a statement that conflict is an opportunity to put the gospel on full display. Uh, we want to, as a community, take this ministry of reconciliation and make it our identity. We are not defined by our sin. We are defined as new creation. And that new creation, it doesn't, it doesn't, we're not alone in this. We've been molded into a community. And we actually need one another to understand our Savior. And so we're saying that, yes, reconciliation is messy. It's difficult. It's complicated. But we believe it's a mess worth making. Reconciliation is also risky. Think about Philemon for a second. He was risking a lot taking Onesimus back. He was risking social capital. um, He was risking financial loss. But he did it. Uh, the gospel makes us generous people. And so, in order for reconciliation to work, if you're going to really know people and be known by them, that takes risk, it takes vulnerability. Being vulnerable is within itself a risk. If I'm vulnerable with you, you can take the information I'm using and use it against me. You can gossip, you can judge me. That's inherently risky. But we believe this we believe that putting the gospel on display, putting this new creation ministry on display is a risk worth taking. And so, like I said last week, we want to provide rhythms for us as a church community to do this together. Uh, we believe that if we don't make something a priority, just like exercising, it's all of a sudden going to be June and those New Year's resolutions we made about that treadmill are, they're gone. And so we want to create a rhythm, a healthy rhythm where we as a church body say, hey, we are taking this, this work, this identity, this ministry of reconciliation seriously. And so we're relaunching community groups. They actually start tonight. Some of them are happening tonight. And so what we're saying is this. Hey, we want to, as a body, every single one of us, get together and practice community together. Be known. Work on knowing each other. Yeah, we're going to hurt each other. We're going we're to—feelings are going to be stepped on. But we're going to practice this ministry of reconciliation. Um, and so for this to work, we have to embody the book of Philemon. Just like Paul wasn't forcing anything on Philemon, we don't want to force community on you. Please hear me say that. This is not a forced activity here at Compass. But what we're saying is this. If we really do want to be a witness to a broken world, we need to love each other. And if we're going to love each other, we need to be around each other. It's really easy to love someone from a distance. They don't ever upset you. You don't ever upset them. No conflict. We want to make rhythms where we're getting into each other's lives. We're getting to know one another. We're sharing our struggles. We're sharing our burdens. And the fruit of that, as we start to grow in our understanding of the gospel, is love. And a watching world will see that love, and it's going to be unusual. It's going to be something they've never seen, something they've never experienced. So here's what we're doing. They start this week, and they're going to run for about 12 weeks. They're running until the first week in December. And you you don't, if you miss one, don't feel like you have to drop out. Oh my goodness, it's over. No, 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 don't do that. But we want you to find a community group that's near you, that you resonate with those people. Uh, and so join it and make an attempt to be there as often as you can. Realign your priorities. To say, hey, this is a part of my identity, community. It's not some tag onto the Christian faith. It's central. So I'm going to make this a priority. And so we're asking you to join and be known. It's going to be awkward. I, I guarantee you. I, I My community group starts on Wednesday. I know that it's going to be great, but there's going to be lots of awkward conversation. People get to know each other. That just happens. But embrace the awkward with us and t- set off with us toward community. It's going to be risky. If, you, if you've been here for a while and you've just kind of been on the fringes, you've just been hanging out, now all of a sudden being known, people are going to be like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that about so-and-so. Wow. And th- there's a risk involved with that. But here's what we're saying as a community. We're all going to take that risk together. We're all going to be known. Why? Because when we come out of the fringes and we come into the center— That's where true growth happens, and that's where we learn, and we embody, and we experience this ministry of reconciliation together. We're all doing this together, and we're all headed this way. I know it's risky, but we think it's a risk worth taking. Paul climbed into a a social setting, and he flipped it on its head. We have the ability to do that here in our city. So many people look at the church, and they say, I know what Christianity is all about. It's about empire building. Uh, that pastor just wants to get a big audience, and he's going to get a popular podcast, and he's going to go to conferences, and he's going to buy a big house. I've been there, done that. Empire building, I don't want it. We have an opportunity to flip that on its head. Say, no, 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 we're not about empire building. We're actually all equals here. Uh, nobody's better than the other. We're not building our own empire. We're actually crafting our lives together, getting to know each other, and embodying that because we had a Savior who did that for us. We can use this church to point to Jesus, and one of the rhythms that we can do that through is through community. Will you join me? Let's pray and ask for God's help in this. Father, I thank you so much for the book of Philemon and how uh, you, your servant Paul models this ministry of reconciliation. God, I pray that we as people would model that together, that we'd be willing to be hurt for one another, that we would uh, take on other people's brokenness and point them to the Savior. Father, we do need one another. We can't do this alone. So I pray that you would help us, give us strength to do the risky business of letting people into our lives so that we know them and we're known by them. And God, I pray that this would be a spirit-led ministry that our neighbors see and know there's something different because we have been made new. God, help us to be a witness to a broken place that is in so desperate need of the Savior. ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.